Let's just pray. Thank you, Father, that you're here with us, that you're, you're in our midst, that you've joined yourself to us, that we're one body with you through the Lord Jesus. Father, we just thank you for the testimony that uh, has been planted in the earth. Lord, and we just thank you that, uh, man, we could just declare your testimony today, that it could uh, just give shape to our lives, that it can give shape to the body of Christ in the earth, and that we can um, just understand what it is you've done for us and why you've done it. Glory to God. Um, sometimes in the, the name of the, the message is uh, something old, something new, something borrowed, something true. Right? I, I, I replaced the something blue at the end, although I could have put the blue in there and it still would have fit. Um, I'll try and explain why that is relevant at the, the end of the message. Um, I talk a lot about covenant and new covenant um, things, but I do it without using that language. And so a lot of times people think, well, are you ever going to talk about the new covenant? Are you ever going to talk about it? Well, yeah, I mean, I talk about it pretty much every single time we gather together. And so it occurred to me that, that maybe the, uh, our thoughts about, the, about covenant and the new covenant and the old covenant need to, to kind of be filled out so we can understand it a little bit differently. So, man, I want to talk about the new covenant today, today um, to use the language that's in the Bible. I don't know if you guys realize this, but you will get a first-class education in being able to read the Bible by listening to our messages. And so if you think you struggle to read the Bible, man, listen to our messages and read the Scriptures. Listen to our messages and go back and read the Scriptures that, that we quote, and you'll find them being filled out. And it will really bless you, because you can hear a word like a new covenant, and you can be like, covenant? I mean, we don't really encounter that, we think in our modern day society. So we could think, what do I need to know about a new covenant? But, but it'll help you understand the scriptures if you understand that. Yeah, man, hook yourself up, brother. I mean, we are here. Yeah, speak comfortably. I mean, if the Lord speaks comfortably to us so our bodies can be comforted, man, we want you to feel comforted. Hallelujah. So, I mean, how about the new covenant? I mean, what do you guys think about when you hear the new covenant, when you hear that word? inside of yourself. What comes to your mind? Does anything come to your mind? What come to your mind is, well, I know it's great, but I don't know what it's about. I don't know why I should care. <laughs> Some of us are like, I don't know why I should even care. <laughs> How can that help my life today? Right? I love Thomas Kiefer. He talks about, well, in layman's terms, let me explain it to you. Um, when I'm out on the streets, I don't use words like new covenant. Right? But I explain the new covenant. When I'm in the church, I find that the church has a gross poverty in their understanding of these things. So I try and use these terms so people can begin to see what the Scriptures actually say. And they can find the Scriptures being declared properly. But man, I love the New Covenant. I love the New Covenant, right? Even though you guys have probably never almost heard me use that word, covenant. I love the New Covenant. The covenant is the testimony of Jesus Christ. The New Covenant is the testimony of Jesus Christ. And we know that Jesus Christ is the Father's testimony. It is the Father's testimony. Jesus Christ is the Father's will and testament. Now, when I come and use the word will and testament, now all of a sudden we have a reference point for will and testament. 
Okay, we have some idea of what that's talking about. Jesus Christ is the God of all glory, the Father of lights, will, and testament. And so the new covenant helps give shape and form to the body of Christ. It's what's given, it's there to help give shape to the body of Christ and to give shape to our lives. So it would behoove us to understand what it's talking about and understand what's the new covenant all about. So you might ask yourself, what's the new covenant all about? And that'd be a great place to start because I'm going to give you a bunch of thoughts to twist on that I think will bless you because they bless me. And it will also give you some thoughts to twist on with the Lord, right? But when we say new covenant, why is we even using the word new? Well, that means there was a first covenant. And for those of you that don't know, the first covenant, as we're talking about in the scriptures, it's not the first covenant chronologically because there were covenants given before the scriptures used the term first covenant. So the first covenant in the scriptures is talking about the law of Moses. Okay? So when we, we use the language where we come and say new, the thing that we're doing immediately when we say new is we're making the first old. And if we make in the first old, what we're saying is it's passed away, right? What we're saying is the old has passed away when we say new. So what's the significance of the old passing away? Why did the old need to pass away? And why is the new replacing it? What's that all about, right? We're going to answer all those questions because it will come, it will really help you to know God. And I just want to tell people who are theological and that want to engage with the scriptures if you're not engaging with theology or with the scriptures from the perspective of wanting to encounter the Lord, you're not engaging from the proper foundation. Everything we say today is only so valuable as it painting a picture of God himself and it revealing the Father's heart himself. It's only so valuable that it can cause you to encounter God himself on account of you having seen deeply into his heart. So that's what we're busy with today. We're not busy with an intellectual exercise. I might get into some things that sound intellectual, and you might think you get lost. But try and keep your mind in the place where you're thinking of beholding God, seeing God in what I'm saying. Keep that in the back of your mind. We're trying to see God. What we're talking about is God himself in the heart of God. That's what we're talking about. Now, I don't know if you guys realize this, but humans, we can struggle to explain God right? We can really grapple with our explanations and the words that we use. It can be very difficult to try to string together words to explain God. I mean, you're talking about God that has no beginning or end, right? He's like infinite. He's omnipotent. I mean, there's so many things you could say about God, and human beings can really struggle to try to explain God. And in our struggle to explain God, we can many times use worldly things, to try to explain God. And I don't just mean like using an analogy, because it's fine to use an analogy to explain to God. So we don't just use worldly things to try to explain God, but we use man's perspective of worldly things to then try to explain God. And that can really cause us to miss the mark, right? Where we, we, we have a concept of a worldly thing, and then we use our understanding of a worldly thing to try to explain something about God. And when we do that, we can really miss the mark and not explain God at all, and we can really depersonalize God and make God very mechanical in our lives and make God very much like a contract. A contract. We can make God very transactional, where it's just God is this contract. 
or he's like a cosmic slot machine that if we could put in the magic coin and pull the handle, then we're going to get what we need, right? And so we spend all of our time trying to have this mechanical transactional relationship with God instead of trying to engage with the person. Now, covenant is one of those things that we have. We, covenant is, there's a worldly concept of what a covenant is. And man has a certain perspective about covenant. And that's one of the things that we've done with the word covenant. We've taken covenant, our idea of covenant, and we've used that to explain God, and we've gotten it all wrong, right? And so when we've explained covenant from a worldly perspective and from the perspective of man, we've explained covenant largely as a contract. It's a contract, right? And if that word covenant sounds, what, is this like Middle Earth, right? Is this like Lord of the Rings or Camelot? With Lance, I loved Sir Lancelot and Merlin when I was a little kid. I love that stuff, man. So is this back then? So our, our modern day language for covenant we've used is, is contract, right? We've used contract. And when we've talked about covenant, even in the church, and many, many books have been written about covenant in the body of Christ. And I got to promise you that there's very little in those books that are actually accurate. There's maybe 10% that touches on something that's good. But we've, we've made covenant to be more out to be like a contract. We've made it sound more like, let's make a deal, right? Like deal making. And so covenant has become very much like deal making, you know? And if we're really sophisticated in our understanding of covenant, we describe the deal making between the father and the son. Let's make a deal, right? And, and so in doing that, we've really missed the heart of God which is what covenant is trying to declare. Because like I just said, the new covenant is the will and testament of God. That's what it is. Well, if it's a will and a testament, if it's God's will and God's testament, then it's telling us something about this guy's heart. It's not telling us about a contract, right? It's not telling us, well, a deal has been made. Now you go read the deal and you figure out your role in the deal. That's not what it's talking about. That is a very, very elementary understanding that leaves you engaging with the theory and engaging with something mechanically instead of engaging with the heart of a person, right? So a contract, somebody might correct me with this because I'm kind of like an ignoramus. Is it okay with y'all if I'm I'm an ignoramus? Can you imagine that an ignoramus can stand up in front of the camera and talk? Shocking, isn't it? I mean... Some people are thinking, did did everyone get together and vote? And this is the guy they voted for? My goodness. I feel like Moses sometime, where Moses told God, listen, Aaron talks way better than me. Can you just get Aaron to be my my voice? And God's like, brother, do you think the power is found in your eloquent speech? The world thinks power is found in the eloquence of speech. And maybe with worldly things, eloquence of speech does matter. But with godly things, the eloquence of your speech has no power. The power is in God, right? So someone might correct me, but a contract is a promissory note. It's a promissory note. A contract is there to give force or validity to something that's promised, right? Now, why would you have to have a promissory note? or a contract to give force or validity to something that's promised. Well, I'll tell you why, because man can lie and man can change their minds. <laughs> we see it all over the place. I mean, we even have cliches. A man's word doesn't mean anything today anymore. <laughs> man's word used to mean something, <laughs> right? Man's word used to mean something. 
So man can lie, man can change their minds. So the contract or the promissory note is there to give assurance that what was said will be performed. And to also maybe have some type of recourse in case it's not performed. So it's like the security, right? It's what makes you feel okay about what's been promised on either side or what's been agreed to. As if the agreement doesn't carry enough weight itself, we need this contract, this covenant, we need this promissory note to make us feel okay that this thing actually has power to enforce what's written here, right? And we have some type of recourse in the legal world should they not hold up their end of the bargain. We got a contract, don't you know? <laughs> right? We got a contract. So it's there to give assurances to both parties because man can lie and man can repent. Man can change your mind. Well, back then, yeah, I felt like doing that. I don't feel like doing that no more ever since you ran off with my wife. <laughs> right? When I thought you were my friend, it was all good. But when you stole my wife, I'm not holding up my end of the bargain no more. <laughs> you broke the contract. <laughs> um, listen, I know it sounds obvious, but God is not a man that he should lie. Neither is he the son of man that he will change his mind about something he's promised or about what he's promised, right? That's actually in the scriptures. It's in the book of Numbers. It's in Deuteronomy also. God's not fickle. You ever heard the word fickle? God's not fickle. His yay is yay. His nay is nay. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. It's man who needs a contract to give force to his word. It's man who needs a contract to give validity to what he says because it's man who can lie, not God. God can't lie. And so God's idea or perspective of covenant is not akin to contract. It is not akin to contract. It is a deeply personal thing to God. Covenant. It is a deeply personal thing to God. When God thinks of covenant, he thinks of what's in his heart. He thinks of the love he feels for people. He doesn't think of a contract written on letterhead. He's not looking down at man and saying, well, we have a contract over here where it says that I will love them. It's clearly written down. And so, I, you know what? That's, uh, that's what I'll do. The force behind what God does is not a contract. The force behind what God does is his heart. God lives out of the heart, which is why the scriptures talk about us living out of our heart, because we are the image and the likeness of God. Right? So what is a covenant? And what is the new covenant in the eyes of God? You guys follow me so far? What is a new covenant in the eyes of God? Man, do you guys believe that I'm standing right here? And I'm not like, oh, have I gone out of the screen one time? It's a miracle, man. You go look at the old videos and the stage is like, and I'm all over the place. Zoom, zoom. There was even people that had a spirit of fear come upon them when they heard that I'm going to stand up again. Because they're thinking, I've got to watch this guy go back and forth again? My goodness, Lord, help me. God brought salvation to your house. <laughs> Listen. If God can cause Greg to sit still in front of people, then God can do anything. Let it be a sign testifying to you of the strength and the might of God. So what is the new covenant in the eyes of God? For those of you that like to follow along in the scriptures or are going to follow along later, um, we're going to look at Hebrews a lot today. 
and we'll, we'll look at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15 for the next uh, bit of passages that we read. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. It says, And for this cause, Jesus is the heat. And for this cause, He is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is of force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator lives. Now, there's a whole lot I could say about all those things, but I'm, I'm going to try and, and, and stay focused here. I don't know if you guys pick up on this, but he's using language that would be consistent with our ideas of a will. That's what he's talking about. So when a person dies in this world, guys, they have something called a will, right? And a person will have a will, and the will is the testament of the person and what their wishes are. That's what the will is all about. You have a will to declare to everybody your testimony or your testament. It's like your, your last wishes. It's there to declare what your wishes are, right? That's what you have a will for. And the reason why, it's, it's, it's actually called their last will in the testament. And the reason why it's called their last will in the, the testament is because it's not read or made of force until they die. So whatever it is they have written there, and whatever it is they have said there, it's not a force unless they first die. What they said there is not set in motion until they die. So the thing that they say, the thing that they testify of, their will, the will that they have to happen, and their, their, their wishes being revealed, that thing is not set in motion. It's not even revealed. Neither is it set in force until that person dies. That's what a will is. That's what it's talking about. I want you to start thinking about covenant that way. I want you to start thinking about the new covenant that way when it talks about Jesus as the mediator of a new covenant and it starts talking about Jesus giving a testament or Jesus giving a testimony or him being the testator. I want you to start thinking about Jesus and his blood being shed and his death setting in motion the last will and testament of God. If you want to use human language that way. Now we know it's not the last will and the last testament because God ever lived right? So it's not in the same sense of our worldly thoughts about it, right? But Jesus is the last will and the last testament of God because he is the revelation of the will and the testament of God. There is no other will or testament outside of the Lord Jesus. God, who in sundry times spoke to us by the prophets and the fathers through the covenants that were in the Old Testament, hath in these last days spoken his heart to us through Jesus, right? And what he spoke in Jesus was set in force and released in this Jesus dying on the cross. Because the testament is not a force, neither is it given or revealed without the death of the testator. Like, listen, my parents have a will. I don't know what's in there. And whatever is in there is not going to come upon me or be made valid or put in motion until they pass from this earth. Now, we know they won't die because those who die that are in the Lord fall asleep in the Lord and they ever live it, right? But just to give you some idea of what's going on. So the author of Hebrews, he, it's interesting he does this, but we never connect with this because we get to deal-making. He's trying to tell us about the will and the testament of God. 
in the sense of the last will and the last testament of someone being released upon their death. That's why it talks about the blood of the new covenant. It's talking about the death of the testator. And what does that death declare? What does it set in motion? What is the force of what is declared there? And so the author of Hebrews, he describes the ushering in of the new covenant in the same way you would describe someone's last will and testament. Very interesting. Very interesting that he does that. So just as a person's last will and testament is read upon their death, Jesus shedding his blood, that means Jesus dying, Jesus shedding his blood is the declaration of God's will and God's testament. Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, meaning his death is a testimony to us. It's a testimony of God's will, God telling us his will and his wishes for our life. That's what it is, right? God is speaking to us through his son Jesus, right? When it says God who spoke to us in the old times by the fathers and by the prophets, it's talking about through the covenant. Abraham was the father of faith. Well, how did God speak to us through Abraham? He spoke to us through Abraham through the covenant that was revealed with him and Abraham. That was speaking something to us. It was telling us something about God's will and God's wishes. The law that was given from, to Moses, it was a covenant, but it was speaking of God's will and God's wishes. It was containing a promise from God to all people. So God was trying to tell us about his will and his wishes for our life. He was trying to tell us something about what he promised us through the covenant that he had with Abraham and through the covenant that was through Moses, through the law. But now God... In these last days, is speaking to us through his son Jesus, through the death of his son Jesus. His son Jesus is the declaration of his will and his testament. His son Jesus is the declaration of his wish for your life and what is in his heart for your life. His son Jesus is the declaration of his promise to you. Jesus is the promissory note. God himself is the promissory note. God himself is the surety. He is the assurance. Right? And as you look in Hebrews, you'll find all kinds of things that say this. Hebrews 12, 24, do you know what it says? It says the blood of Jesus speaks better things than the blood of Abel. So it even comes talking about how his blood is a testament. It's declaring a will and a testament. The blood of Jesus, the death of Jesus declares something to us. It declares to us God's wishes. Jesus' death on the cross testifies that God's will is for the sin and death in the world to be sent away from you. That's God's will. His will for your life is for the sin and death that's in this world that's trying to overcome your life to be sent away from you. That's his will. That's what Jesus' blood is declaring to you. God does not will for me to die. And in the blood of Jesus pouring out of his body, God has forbid death from overcoming my life. These are the things you're supposed to be thinking of when you think of new covenant. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. says, God himself shed his blood for you. You can pull it up and look it up. Acts 20, 28. Let your mind be blown up. Because this world... And churchianity in this world has created a separation between Jesus and God. To where you can't see God when you see Jesus. But Jesus said over and over and over again, if you see me, you've seen the Father. So if you've seen me shed my blood, you've seen the Father shed his blood. 
And so Acts 20, 28 talks about God himself shedding his blood for you. God prepared himself a body in Jesus. And the reason he prepared himself a body in Jesus was to offer his body up for you. That's why he did it. He shed his blood not only to testify to you that his desire was to offer himself in his life for you, but he shed his blood to actually testify to you that the thing he willed in his heart, which was to send sin and death away from you, the thing that he willed in his heart to perfect you once in all time from death by providing himself as the lamb, that thing has been performed. The thing I willed for your life in my heart my, my last testament, the promise, that thing has been performed. And this blood that I shed out of the body I prepared for myself is declaring to you that not only have I willed for you to be sanctified once for all time from death, but I have given my own body up to be broken and let the blood run out of my own body to declare to you that that which I promised, which was eternal life, has been performed in my body being broken. We're talking new covenant still. This is God's testimony. We're witnesses of the testimony of God. That's what the new covenant is all about. So the blood of Jesus declares God's will to remove death from you is of force. The, I'm going to say that again. The blood of Jesus declares to all of us that it wasn't just a fanciful thought God had to cleanse us from sin and death. It wasn't just like, well, I'd like to do that. The blood of Jesus declares to us, not only has this guy promised or told us he wants to do that, but the blood of Jesus declares God's will to remove death from you is of force on account of him dying. Just like it says, the last will of a testament of a person isn't of force until the death of the testator. That's what his death trying to declare to you. I have perfected you from death the promise of eternal inheritance i've obtained it by preparing a body for myself and jesus and giving my body up to be broken so that i could absorb all that death into myself and you could be redeemed unto your eternal inheritance that's what the new covenant is supposed to describe to you we'll jump to hebrews chapter 6 now and we'll pick it up in in verse 13 Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13. I know I go fast, so I'll give people a chance to get there if they want. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swear by himself. <laughs> Again, contracts, promissory notes, right? God doesn't need paper. The, the paper is supposedly greater than the word of a man. There's nothing greater than God or the word of God, right? So God, when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swear by himself. And some of you might be thinking, well, when did that happen? Well, if you go read in, in Genesis, uh, God had Abraham set up the animals on both sides, and then Abraham didn't enter into a promise with God or in, enter into an agreement with God, but Abraham was put to sleep. And it says that a smoking furnace went through the middle of the animals. And it said that a lamp, a burning lamp, went through the middle of the animals. That was God swearing by himself because there was nothing greater that he could swear by. There was nothing that could give more force to his promise than himself. <laughs> That's what it's depicting. 
For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so, after Abraham had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. Talking about an oath puts people to rest. Something that carries promise, right? Like we enter into a contract if we have doubts about what's going to happen. The bank has doubts about me just telling them, I promise you I will repay this loan. They have doubts about that. And so they say this contract is greater than your promise. And so the oath that I'm giving in that contract by signing it helps them be a little more at ease that I actually do intend to pay. Right? That's what it's talking about there with the oath. It's for men swear, verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. Okay, okay. Right? I mean, when we do a wedding, what do we do? We vow to each other. Right? We make a vow to each other. That's with the intent to, okay, yes, I promise you that when the going gets tough, that I am not out the door. <laughs> right? That's the, the premise. But, you know, we're in a carnal world and we're imperishable bodies and in a perishable world so it doesn't always it can't always work out that way for men verily swear by the greater and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife wherein god willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for god to lie we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. It's impossible for God to lie. Now listen, he's giving language and shape to covenant here again. We, we don't want to lose sight. He's talking covenant language again here. And what he's saying to us is a covenant is a promise. It's the declaration of an oath. It's God testifying to mankind, and it's God promising something to man, but he isn't just promising something to man. Within the testimony that he's giving, is he's giving an oath that I am going to bring about that which I promised. That's him swearing by himself. So I'm not just telling you about this promise, but I'm telling you that I'm going to be the one that brings about what I've promised you, because there's nothing greater that can give you an assurance that you're going to have what I promised than me telling you I'm going to bring about myself. God, who can swear by nothing greater, swore by himself. By his doing, you'll inherit eternal life, not by your doing. Thank God indeed. So th that's the whole point of this dissertation here. When God could swear by nothing greater, that's why he accesses Abraham. When God could swear by nothing greater, he swore by himself. When God could give no greater assurance that he will bring about the eternal life that he promised from the beginning. He swore by himself, right? Do you know what the manifestation of him swearing by himself is? Jesus shedding his blood on the cross, the blood of the new covenant. That's God swearing by himself that what I promised, I will bring about. I promised to redeem you from death unto an eternal inheritance, this blood is the testimony that I have performed that which I've promised. That's what it's talking about, right? God swore by himself when he could swear by nothing greater. Guys, I don't know if we think about this. I've been twisting on this a lot. There's nothing 
there's nothing God can promise you that's greater than Him promising you Himself. There's nothing greater God can promise you than Him promising you Himself. And that's really, if you want to use simplistic terms to talk about the New Covenant, it's God promising you Himself. It's God promising you that He will be the God that you need, that He desires to be the God that you need. And not just that He promises and that He desires and that He wishes, but then demonstrating to you that He has performed what was needed for Him to be your God. And when we think about Him being our God, there's certain, I've talked about this before, but there's qualifications with that. That doesn't just mean that this guy's better than you. In order for someone to be your God, they got to be able to care for your life. That means they ought to be able to give you what you need. Well, do you know what human, being, human beings needed? We needed to be perfected from death. We needed to be delivered from sin. We needed to be cleansed once for all time. We needed peace and love and joy. We needed the kind of peace and love and joy that isn't at the mercy of the world. We needed our lives to be eternally redeemed from death. We needed our lives to be set apart unto an incorruptible life. And so the only person that could meet the qualifications or be hired to be our God is someone who could do all of that. And the new covenant is God testifying to you his promise to you of himself. He promised to be your God. And the blood running out of his body on the cross is the testament or it's the evidence or it's the force that declares to you that he is the God that you need because there he is killing death. Right? There he is killing death. So when God's sitting around thinking, I'm just trying to give human thoughts, right? Because sometimes we think God's thoughts are so lofty. We take that verse, God's thoughts are not as our thoughts. And his ways are not, and we think, well, we can't know what God would think. That's nonsense, right? I just want to give some shape here. So when, imagine God sitting around, God thinking, what can give force to these people? I know that I am what I am, and I am so much that wherever I go, I manifest life. But he sat around thinking, what can actually give my promise force to these guys? And do you know what he thought? He thought nothing will carry more weight in these guys' eyes than me shedding my own blood. Nothing will be of more force to these people than me shedding my own blood. Nothing can actually attain to or obtain eternal redemption better than me shedding my own blood. And so when God, when he could swear by nothing greater, he swore by himself that he will be the God we need. And that's why God is offering his own body on the cross to obtain eternal redemption for us. If he's going to be our God, then he's got to obtain eternal redemption for us. Well, we were in a body that was dying. Death had gotten it right to get in our body. We had flesh and blood bodies now. And so the only way he could eternally redeem us is if he partook of flesh and blood with us. And he partook of flesh and blood with us through the man Jesus. And then he took that body, the body of sin that we were clothed in, the body that death had corrupted, and he took that body to the cross and he laid it upon the altar and he let the blood run out of that body. Thus, in obtaining eternal redemption for us, and nothing will be of more force to redeem these people from death than me putting to death the body of death nothing will be of more force than that so god shed his own blood to be a testimony of his will and the blood of the new covenant testifies of god's desire to be your god his blood says to you this is what his blood is saying to you you need salvation from death 
You need to be set apart from sin and set apart unto life. You need love. You need peace. You need joy. What his blood says to you is promising I promise you. I am your shield and your buckler. I am your exceedingly great reward. I have shed my blood to deliver you eternally from the pangs of death. That's what it's saying to you. That's the blood of the new covenant. That's what it means. The blood is testifying something to you, and it speaks better things than the blood of Abel. And the better things it speaks to you is that he is your God, which is what Hebrews gets into, that the new covenant was given so that we could once and for all be persuaded that he's the God that we need and that our hearts could see we are actually his people. And the way you see God is the lover of your life and that he's the thing that you need is this God came into the earth and loved your life more than his own to the degree that he let himself be nailed to a cross and let the blood run out of his body for the purpose of redeeming you from the death that's in the world. But we describe covenant as a contract. We can be sure God will do what he said. We have a contract. And if we're really sophisticated, like I said, the son, Jesus and God have a contract. We're not even involved, so we can't mess it up. There's a small little fraction of what I could take out of that that I could express as true. But we're missing the heart. We think of the new covenant, we want to try to bring out the heart. The new covenant is God testifying to the world. His will, last will and testament. The blood is a force when the testator dies. So what is this death saying to you? The new covenant is God testifying to the world. His will is to deliver you from the pangs of death. And his blood testifies he has done it. He has done it. Promising you, promising, I promise you. Just like blessing, I will bless you. Promising, I promise you. You guys following that? So what's the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant? Why did the new come? Because there's a whole lot of confusion about not just covenant, but the old and the new covenant. Why did the new come? And why is the law of Moses called the old covenant? It's, it's first called first, but then now that we say new, it makes the first one old, right? So why is the law of Moses called the old covenant? Because we have a whole lot of thoughts about that. And I got to tell you, most of the thoughts that I read out there in the world are filled with total and utter confusion, <laughs> chaos, uh, not even resembling something that could be close to the truth. <laughs> Maybe the, the part that's resembling something close to the truth is that we're, we, we don't have to perform the works of the law anymore. I think that's the part that would resemble the truth. But Hebrews 8.13 says this. Hebrews 8.13 says, In that he says, a new covenant, he has made the first old. Now that which decays and waxes old is ready to vanish. Now, I think a lot of people read this, and listen, I'm in this category. When I speak boldly about these things, listen, the reason why I do that is because I'm one of the people that had it all confused, and so I can speak with authority. And so if you feel upset that I trashed this view, I'm trashing a view I once held. So don't identify yourself with your view, right? Because when you identify yourself with your view, what happens is, is you ingrain your view into your heart forever right? And you'll fight to the death to prove your view's right, even if it's wrong. So it's okay to be wrong. Don't identify yourself with your view. So I think a lot of times we, we read about the new and the old, and our, our big thought is that they're different. 
right? Even the word new and old, it, it kind of carries with it some type of connotation that they're different, right? And there certainly are aspects of it that are differing in appearance, but it's not a different promise. New doesn't mean a, a different promise is contained than the promise that was contained in the Old Covenant. So new doesn't mean different in that sense. It's not called the New Covenant because the promise there is different. And if you read in Galatians, the Apostle Paul says in Galatians that the Old Covenant was not contrary to the promise of God. He says it wasn't against the promise of God. He says it didn't disannul the promise that God gave to Abraham. Do you know why he says it didn't disannul the promise that God gave to Abraham? It's because it spoke of the same promise. And in fact, the reason why he gave the law was because of transgression. And do you know how you make the promise void, Paul would come and say? You make the promise void by trying to work to get it, by trusting in your own strength to gain the promise. That's how you can make the promise void. I mean, the only way you can receive a promise is to allow somebody to give it to you for free. And so these Hebrew guys were not walking in the promise. They were trying to work to gain the promise. And so they were making the promise void. And so God said, we're going to give this law. It's not, a, it's, not a different, it's not a different promise that's contained in this law. Neither does it disannul the promise that was made to Abraham. But it's going to come alongside and serve as a memorial to try to remind these guys that I have promised them. That's what it was given for. And so Paul's speaking of the old covenant again in the letter to Ephesians. He calls it the covenants of promise. And so we have all this jacked up theology that the covenant with Noah is different than the covenant with Abraham. And it's different with the covenant than David. There's a covenant here. There's a covenant with Moses. All these different covenants. We got all these ideas that all those different covenants are, are different because we got a jacked up view of covenant. Do you know what doesn't change God the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow? And so he has always been saying the same thing through all of the covenants. Because covenant just means oath or promise. And what he's been saying always is, I promise you. Promising, I promise you, myself. When God could give us nothing greater than himself, he promised us himself. That even to the degree when we took death into ourselves and we thought that made the promise void, promising you, I promised you myself. I will even enter into your death and let the blood run out of your death so that your death can die. And you can know that I am your God. And of a surety, I have eternally redeemed you unto your inheritance. Paul calls all those covenants in Ephesians the covenants of promise. Lumps them all into one. Because they're all saying the same thing. What were they saying? The mystery that had been hidden from the ages. Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Which is God will get it right to come and sup with you. He sees you need your life to be upheld. He's going to get it right to divorce you from the death that you're married to. And he's going to get it right to pour out of himself into you. That's the promised spirit. That's the promise of the father himself. He will pour out of himself his spirit of life. That spirit of life will dwell in you and it will uphold your life. It will keep your house promising. I promise you 
And when he could swear by nothing greater, he swear by himself. And when there could be no greater force that could convince us that what he promised, what he willed for our life, has actually come to pass, he shed his blood on the cross, allowing death to come upon him that it might be consumed by his life. And we have the blood as a testimony, the last will and testament of the Father of lights himself. You have been eternally redeemed. This is what the new covenant is trying to tell us. But it's all about a contract, you know. So you go to God and tell him you demand your promise. You have a contract. You, you think this sounds silly. This, this, some of our meetings consisted of that. <laughs> you have a contract. God has to honor it. And then we come tempting God to be God and we don't even realize it. Prove it. That's what they're always telling Jesus. Prove it. Prove you're the son of God. Prove you've come down from heaven. What did Jesus say? A wicked and perverse generation seeks a sign, and one sign shall be given it, the sign of Jonah in the belly of the whale. And what was he describing? Jonah was spit out of the belly of the whale. And so what was Jesus saying? Three days will I be in the deep, just like Jonah was in the whale, the belly of the whale three days, and then the grave will spit me out because it's not possible for the grave to hold me. That's the sign. He's given you a sign. I promise you, that's the sign. That's the sign. That's actually the, he's not like being difficult about it. Well, we need to teach him something in this. You know, sometimes where you thought your parents were being difficult unnecessarily, and they, they hid behind the, well, we need to teach them something. Nonsense. You ever felt like that? I did. God's not trying to teach you something. He's given you the thing that is the only thing that can actually teach you. He sees the only thing that can actually persuade you, promising I promise you. He understands the heart better than we understand the heart. God's been confirming and affirming the same promise through the covenants given to the fathers and the prophets from the beginning. He keeps confirming it. He keeps rehashing it. He keeps giving it. He keeps saying it again, saying it again, saying it again. Until his last will and testament. That means there's no other covenant that's coming. This Jesus shedding his blood is the last will and testament of God, that he is the God that we need, that he hath performed that which he promised, right? I will never leave nor forsake you. I will not suffer you to see corruption. I will not leave you in the grave. And when I could swear by nothing greater than my swap, I swore by myself. His blood. It's him swearing by himself. <laughs> Hebrews eleven thirteen 13 says, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, afar off, and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. What promise were they seeing afar off? The promise that we've now inherited in the, in the new covenant. They were, they were seeing eternal redemption afar off. Abraham wasn't thinking, well, the promise is I'll have a whole lot of kids. <laughs> he saw Jesus' day. All the guys in the Old Testament saw the promise that was off in the distance of time. Through the covenants that were given to them, they saw that they were all testifying of the promised seed and the promise of the Spirit the promise of life. They saw that all those things were testifying of that. That's how they saw it. And Jesus comes and says about Abraham, Abraham saw my day and did what? Rejoiced. 
Well, how did Abraham see Jesus' day? Through the covenant that was made there. The covenant we call the covenant of circumcision. But Jesus would come and say, the, the author of Hebrews would come and say, that Abraham saw the covenant of circumcision that was made there, and he saw the promise afar off. What was the promise he saw through the covenant that looked like physical circumcision? Do you know the promise that he saw? God will circumcise my body from death. He will cleanse me from the filthiness of the death that's come upon my body, that's come upon the body of the people that I love, that's even come upon my own body. As Job said, this one thing I know, my Redeemer is alive. Moses looked into the law, and you know what he saw in the works of the law? Moses did not see a bunch of things we need to perform. That's not what he saw when he looked in the law. He saw all these works of the law are painting a picture of the promised seed and the prom Father promising us His Holy Spirit. When Moses wrote about the day of Pentecost, he wasn't thinking about performing the rituals so that these rituals could be blessing them with life. What he saw there is the Father's trying to memorialize the promise of the Spirit for us because we've transgressed. We can't see that the promise is valid. We can't see that the Father has promised and He will perform it. And so we're busy trying to gather life unto ourselves. And the day of Pentecost was given to declare to them the promise of the Spirit and that God will perform His desire to pour out of Himself His Holy Spirit and He'll do it by sending his seed and providing himself a lamb. That's what Moses saw when he thought of the day of Pentecost. He didn't think if we could perform all these things, we'll gain us the blessing of life. And in fact, in Deuteronomy, he specifically says, I'm writing you these things lest you get into the promised land and think that you gain the promised land by your own works. Jeremiah come and chastised Jerusalem in Jeremiah chapter 7 because they thought that the fast God had chosen they thought the Sabbath was all about the works they would perform and Je Jeremiah comes and says no you guys not that there was no law given when God came and grabbed us by the hand and led us out of Egypt and then we transgressed the covenant that was made when God promised to deliver us from bondage and that he performed what he promised and that he promised us by himself because there was nothing greater that could convince us the promise was true. Know ye not that that's what it was all about? And that you transgressed that and God gave us the law not to tell you that you can have life by your own works or that you can inherit life by your own works, but he gave you the law to point to the promise again. So you could see the promise for what it was and you could be put to rest by the promise. That's how Moses saw the, the promise for, in the law. So that's what those covenants were pointing to, the promise. But we have the new covenant. So what we would say is, just like the author of Hebrews begins the chapter with, in these last days. He's talking covenant there. In that first verse, a lot of people just gloss over that because they forget the concept of the covenant there and what it means to Israel. We get to reading like Gentiles and we can just get philosophical and we could say a bunch of things. But the, the premise there is covenant. What he's saying there, but in these last days, God has brought the promise that all the patriarchs, all the prophets, and all the fathers saw afar off. The new covenant is declaring, it is the revelation that God has brought the promise to light in Jesus. It's no longer afar off. We see it right here. We see it right now. And guess what? That's actually in the scriptures. Go read 2 Timothy 1. It says the promise of life that was given to all of us in Christ Jesus before the world began. 
I just got to say this real quick. We read Ephesians chapter 1. It says God chose us in Christ before, he, uh, before the foundation of the world. He predestined us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we could stand before him holy and blameless in love. We've taken that verse and made it sound like we were in Christ before we were in Adam. That's got nothing to do with what Paul's talking about there in Ephesians. What he's talking about is that God predestined, God determined before he made anything that the way we would have life is through Christ Jesus. That the only way we could stand in his sight blameless and feel love and not feel condemned is if we were clothed in the life of Christ, in Christ himself. And so Timothy comes, and Timothy, he says the same thing, but he says it in a different way. He says the promise of life. So Paul's talking about the promise of life in Ephesians. The promise of life that was given to us in Christ Jesus before the world began was made manifest by the appearing of Jesus and him abolishing death and bringing life and immortality to light. The promise they all saw afar off, it has been made manifested now because death has been abolished. The power death had over us has been destroyed and immortality and life have been brought to light in this man, Jesus. That's the new covenant. I love what, what Jim says, a big, a big uh, memorial God's given in him in his life. He could say something real simple about the new covenant that it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. <laughs> and your eyes getting set on what that means, right? Christ overcome death in the flesh. He's in you. You know what he's in you to do? Overcome death in the flesh. <laughs> that simple. First John says, a new commandment I give you that isn't new. <laughs> that seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? I bring that up because we think the new covenant means that it's, something that hasn't always been. <laughs> we think that it's declaring something that hasn't always been. It's declaring something different than what's been declared from the beginning. First John says, a new commandment I give you that isn't new. The reason is it's new because it's that which has been from the beginning. So a new covenant that's been given to us that isn't containing a new promise because it's actually bringing to light the promise that's been from the beginning. <laughs> that's what it's doing. It's not God making, the new covenant is not God making a different promise. It's the Father, Son, and Spirit bringing to light the promise that's been from the beginning. It's called the new covenant because the promise that's been from the beginning that Moses saw from afar off, that Abraham saw from afar off, has been brought to light. And we see the substance now of that same promise God has always been making from before the world began. We see the substance of what that looks like in Jesus Christ. Right? We see the substance of the promise come to light in the man Jesus. We see death has been abolished inside of his flesh. We see God manifested in human flesh. And that brings immortality to light right here in our faces. Right? It's called the new covenant to declare that the old covenant is old, or that declare that the first covenant is old and ready to pass away. The reason why it's declared to be old and ready to pass away is on account of the promise that was foreshadowed. It foreshadowed of the promise. It just told you about the promise that was to come. Well, listen, now that that promise is actually manifested inside of the body of Jesus, then that old covenant, that first covenant has now been made old and it's ready to pass away because here is the substance. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1 says it this way, for the law having a shadow of good things to come. Do you know what that shadow means? Foreshadowing. For the law 
prophesying of the good that would come in Jesus. And not the very image of the things. Can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. So the law was a shadow of the promise to come. It pointed to it. It was meant to give us a hope. It prophesied of the work of the Father. Well, we're no longer looked to the shadows in the old covenant to try to see the promise of the Father. We see the substance of the Father's promise right now in Jesus. Here it is, right in front of us. Everything that that old, that first covenant that the law was prophesying of, here it is right now in the flesh of Jesus. And so we don't look to the day of Pentecost as if the promise is to come. We're not... You know what, Brother Jim, he reminded me on the day of Pentecost, you know, I didn't even say anything about it from here. Do you know why? Because we're not worshiping a day as if the promise of the Spirit hasn't come yet. We see Jesus and we see that the Father has poured out of Himself on all flesh His Holy Spirit. We see Jesus and we see that God has made Himself the temple. We're no longer walking or looking to the shadows in the old covenant, what that means is, is we're not up in the temple as if the temple is the house of God because we see Jesus and we say that God has made our bodies his house. So we're not worshiping the day. We're not performing the rituals on the day of Pentecost anymore because that which those things declared have already come to pass. And they've come to pass in you and they've come to pass in me. And those things were declaring that man is the temple of God and that man is going, God is going to cleanse the temple and make a home for himself inside of man. Well, we got that. So we ain't going to get together on a day and perform a bunch of rituals. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6. This is speaking of the substance. Hebrews talks about the substance. Jesus is the substance. The substance of everything that was ever spoken through all of the fathers, all of the patriarchs, all of the covenants. He's the substance of the faith that was always being declared in all of those things. So Hebrews 8, 6, speaking of the substance, speaking of Jesus, says it this way. But now has he obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. Okay, so there's the better. The promises of the new covenant are better. The promises, the new covenant is better. And so what is the, what is the author of, of the Hebrews getting at when he says that a better covenant established upon better promises. What does that mean? Well, what it means is it's, it's better in as much as the substance is always better than the shadow, right? That's what it means. It's not something different. Listen, I got a picture of my wife in my phone. When I'm off in Ireland, or when I was off in South Carolina for 10 days, I was looking at the pictures of my wife in my phone. And you know what? I felt real happy looking at the pictures, right? And the pictures gave me great hope. Right. It kept me until the day when I could be home. Right. But it's better to be home and to hold her in my arms and be able to actually kiss her face than to look at the picture. <laughs> Do you see what I'm saying in my phone? And so the new covenant is better in that same sense. 
It's better to be able to see what was always being promised right there in your midst and to be able to touch it, to be able to grab a hold of it. Jesus said, touch me when he came out of the grave, having overcome death in the flesh. A spirit doesn't have flesh and bone, right? And so it's better covenant built on better promises in the sense that it's always better to be able to grab a hold and touch something than to see something from afar off. But that doesn't make the two things different. It wasn't a picture of a different person in my phone. I didn't have a picture of a different woman that made me happy about the day I would come home. I had a picture of my wife in my phone that told me about the wife I have at home, right? But once I got home and she's standing there, And this is what it means that the old covenant passed away. Once I got home and she's standing there, I wasn't flipping through my phone trying to find the picture to look at the picture. Because the need for the picture had passed away. Because the thing that the picture was telling me about was standing right there in front of my face. And so I threw the phone to the side and I grabbed her. Like Pepe Le Pew. Right? And I started petting her head like that. I don't know if y'all know who Pepe Le Pew is. He's a skunk that fell in love with the cat. Well, it's not a good thing to fall in love with the cat if you're a skunk because the cat does not think that you are beautiful. The cat is thinking about your stench and that your stench is coming to their house. And so that cartoon, the cat's always trying to get away, but Pepe, he kicks her. He's relentless. So when I got home, I wasn't like, well, let me find that picture of my phone still. I threw that phone to the side and I grabbed her. That's what it's talking about, that in in the new, the first has been made old, and if it's been made old, it's ready to pass away. The new is not something different. It's not a different promise than what was prophesied in the old. It is the promise itself made manifest. And so when the promise itself is there in your face, you, you don't need that no more. Here it is. This promise will now keep me. That was trying to keep me in the faith, but the faith that was trying to keep me in has actually materialized in the body of Jesus Christ. And so now I don't need these things to be kept or shut up unto the faith. I can now see the faith clearly in the body of Jesus' death and resurrection. And now I'm looking unto that. So that has passed away. Right? Does that make sense? The blood of bulls and goats. He makes the point about mentioning the blood of bulls and goats. The blood of bulls and goats, you know what it could never do? Could never cleanse us from death. The blood of bulls and goats could never deliver us. It could never deliver our conscience from the death that's in the world. It could never cleanse our conscience from the shame of our nakedness or the shame of seeing death in ourselves or the shame of seeing our life not look like the way we want it to look. Ever felt the shame because you thought your life didn't look like the way it ought to? The blood of bulls and goats can never cleanse your conscience from that because it can never cleanse your conscience from the death that's in the world. And the day that you think your life don't look like it ought to is the day you're beholding your life in the grave instead of beholding your life having been raised up in the body of the Lord Jesus. The blood of bulls and goats could never put our flesh to rest. Didn't matter how many sacrifices were made. You know what they could only do? They could only appoint to the bringing in of something better which is Hebrews talks about. The blood of the bulls and goats could only point to how God promised. And when he could swear by nothing greater, he swore by himself that he would bring in something better, something that could cleanse your conscience from death, something that could put your flesh to rest, something that could perfect you once and for all time from death. And the something better he brought in is he provided himself as a lamb. He shed his own blood. 
he put to, he let the life force that was in the body of death run out in him shedding his blood on the cross and now we see death die just like bono the lead singer of u2 who suffered death his lots of death in his life and he was doing an interview and they were talking to him about his death the death and he was talking about all the art that he did to try to deal with the pain and the way he found an outlet for music and everything else and he said and then one day I went to the place where death died. Calvary. Very interesting he describes it that way. Because here's a guy that was filled with fear and torment over all the death that came around him and how it messed his life up and messed his thoughts up. But then he went to the place where death died. The place where God himself shed his blood. The place where God himself provided a lamb. And it cleansed his conscience from that death, he said. And he became, he became delivered. Right? So this man, Jesus, God swore that he was a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It's no accident that the author of Hebrews quotes that verse where God swore that you are a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It's going right along with when God could swear by nothing greater than himself, he swore by himself. You think God's trusting someone other than himself to redeem us from death? No. No. Jesus called for a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, having shed his blood once for all time, sat down at the right hand of the Father. That is telling us something. He sat down because he has perfected us from death once for all time by offering his body on the altar of our sin. That is the cross. His blood has cleansed our conscience from the body of death, from the body of sin, once for all time. Because we see the strength of death ran out of him. Right? We'll finish with this so we cover all this. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, that them there isn't right. He's finding fault with the first covenant. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. So I could say a lot, but I'm going to just stick to this. You guys have been very patient today. The point is God found fault with the old covenant. Why did he find fault with it? Did he think the old covenant was against the promise? Did he think the old covenant is what was giving people bondage? Did he think the old covenant was that which was serving people with death? Did he think the old covenant is that which was making people commit sins? Well, no, because in the beginning of the letter to the Hebrews, he comes and says that we were in bondage all of our days through the law of Moses. No, he says we were in bondage all of our days through the fear of death. And he says that the devil had power over us through the fear of death. And so God, when he says he found fault with the old covenant, it's not talking about he found fault with it because it was against his promise. He's not talking about finding fault with it because he thought the old covenant was the problem for human beings. The reason why he thought he found fault with the old covenant is because it could never bring the promise to light. It could actually never bring immortality inside of human flesh to bear. It could never actually show human beings that he can be our God. Because he, he did everything he could. He said, in the day that I led you out of Egypt, 
What do you think he was doing when he led them out of Egypt? Notice he talked about the covenant before even the law of Moses was given. He said the day the covenant was made is when he led them out of Egypt. What was the thing he was trying to do there? Promising, I promise you, I will be the God you need. I will deliver you from the bondage of Pharaoh. I will deliver you from the kind of life where you're trying to make life for yourself through your own strength. That's making bricks without straw. I promise you, I will build you a life. You don't need to make your own life. I promise you, I will deliver you from bondage. I will keep you from being hurt. That's why when they left Egypt, it says they had no shoes and they didn't even have the things they needed, but it says not one of them fell weak or sick. That was the covenant. And he saw that none of those things could actually convince them that he was their God or that he would serve them with the life they need. So he found fault with that because it couldn't produce in them the liberty. It could never cleanse their conscience from death. It could never cleanse their conscience from what was all around them. And so he found fault with that. It could never remove sin from the flesh. Sin in the flesh is the problem. These guys, in order for them to believe that I'm the God they need, they've got to see me remove sin from the flesh. That's the only thing that's going to convince him. And so that's why he found fault with the Old Covenant, because immortality couldn't be brought to light through the rituals in the Old Covenant. That's what he knew had to happen. He saw, in order for our conscience to be cleansed from death, in order for us to go to rest in his love for us, We had to see that he could remove death in the flesh. We had to see that. And not only did we have to see he could remove death from the flesh, he knew that we would never have the ability to convince ourselves (laughs) that he had actually done it. I mean, the world today, you know how long we've been trying to convince ourselves this man Jesus never really was physically raised from the dead? And so it isn't just that we needed to see death overcome in the flesh. He saw that he had to get his Holy Spirit inside of us the spirit of truth, and that we would need the spirit of truth to keep us in the place where we saw he overcame death in the flesh. That's why he found fault with it. He saw that's the only thing that can convince and persuade our hearts that he himself has given his body up to be broken. Right? I mean, we ask, did you really? Hath God really said? Am I really free from death? Is my life really okay? God saw that the only thing that would convince us is if he could overcome death in the flesh and then pour out of himself his spirit, the spirit of truth, and that spirit could dwell in us and all the time guide us into the place where we see death overcome in the flesh. That's the new covenant. That's what it's all about. Did that sound like a contract? Sound deeply personal, didn't it? Right? That's what you want to think about when you think of covenant. Don't let that word get all hocus-pocus for you and all heavy. Like we become consumed with blood covenant in the world. Let's write about the blood covenant, right? There's a little portion of that that's actually right. I've read a lot of, of that stuff. The one p- part that I thought was good, where it talked about the one person declaring that they would pour out their life for the other person, right? That part of it is the part that's true. The rest of it is garbage because that's what the blood, that's one of the things the blood declares. Uh, promising, I promise you, I have poured out my life for you. That's God, right? You don't pour your life out for God. God pours his life out for you, right? Anything, you, anything good you think comes out of your life, it comes out of you on account of God having dwelling in you, been producing life in you, right? Glory to God. When you stand before God, you're, he's not going to be looking at all the good you did. 
And he's not going to weigh your life in the balance and your reward in the balance by all the good that you did. Because I promise you, should anything good have come out of you, which is eternal, it would have come out of you by the hand of God. And so the only thing anyone's going to say in the presence of God is, thank you, Jesus. I'm not going to be telling God about all the people I ministered to. I'm not going to be telling God about what we did to lay the foundation that is Christ and Him crucified in this generation. I'm not going to be, don't you know that I built upon the rock only? Where's my mansion? Oh, you're going to give the prostitute the same thing you give me? Trust me, when I see that, I'll thank you, Jesus. If you know God, you will be rejoicing with the angels over that prostitute having inherited all of God. Right? You won't feel upset. Hallelujah. Thank you guys so much. Um, man, God is with you. You'll be blessed in having the God we talked about today brought to your remembrance. And just let it catch you up in a, a conversation with God. Thank you guys for watching. Man, I love all y'all. Y'all have a good day. God bless you. Y'all come back now, you hear?